Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 116, Revelation. Its gates will never be shut. And in this episode, I would really like to take the title as my main theme and look at the gates of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and to talk just a little bit about what gates are for, why there are gates talked about in this holy city, and then compare and contrast these gates with some gates that Jesus talks to Peter about in Matthew 16 when referencing the gates of hell. And I really am picking up off of the previous episode, episode 115, where I am just surveying several sweeping themes over the last two chapters of Revelation. And I felt after making several notes that this one needed to be an episode all by itself. And so I want to talk through a little bit about some personal confession things for me, some self-revelation actually, and how that ties in with what we're told about these gates. And that is that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into these cities. And we can only imagine that that happens through these gates. And so we're just going to take a little bit of time to look at that, what it means to bring a nation's uniqueness and diversity into the heavenly city. And um, again, in the way some people tend to think about what gates are for and um, whether this passage will challenge or confirm some beliefs that many people hold today about heaven and or about hell. And so I'm excited to get into this episode with you. Let's just dive right in. As we begin this week's episode, I'm sure you're aware if you're listening to these in real time that we missed a week on the podcast and that was not intentional. Um, I rarely get sick, but actually got sick last week and on Wednesday when I generally record these episodes, I just did not did not have it in me. And so I just took the week off and said, we'll pick it back up the following Thursday. And so I know it's been a little bit of a gap from this episode and in, into the 115, which was sort of part one to what we're going to talk about today, but that's okay. And I trust that those of you who listen in just uh, moved on to something else that week and maybe are back to the podcast now and we can continue to move forward through the book of Revelation. So what I want to do is just read a short passage from Revelation 21 that focuses in on these gates that will never be shut And then I want to make some observations about it. And here's the passage, Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Now, I've titled my passage or my, um, my episode today, rather, right from verse 25, where it says, its gates will never be shut. And so what I want to focus on is, is a couple of things. And the first is something that surfaced, I can't even remember, I, I feel like it was maybe a year, maybe two years ago, there was a lot of discussion in the news regarding what was taking place at the border, um, our southern border, and um, separating children from their families, and many of these political disturbances that were taking place. And my goodness, if social media wasn't filled with enough memes to talk about, you know, do we build border walls? Um, what do we do in an attempt to, you know, mitigate with um, immigration or whether that's illegal or legal? And again, the whole political discussion. But I, I do remember coming across several memes, one of which was shared by um, someone who attends my church. And the meme itself said something to the effect of, hey, um, even heaven has gates. And it was a quote actually from someone, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the name now, and I guess it's not ultimately important, but it was from a pastor and from someone in a church whose perspective, of course, was shared by this church member. Um, and, and that got put to, to the forefront as if, hey, God is in the business of putting up gates and, and walls, right? And, um, and, and maybe it was referencing these walls that we looked at last week where all these jewels are in the city. And it was making an implication, it was making an inference from the fact that walls are described as assuming that what those walls are for is for keeping people out that you don't want to come in. And of course, gates are the ways through which you enter through these walls, right? So the gates are open and then at night, which is typical in any city, you don't know what's going on under cover of nightfall and you're sus suspicious of there being crimes or thieves or whoever out there. And so typically you lock the gates of the city at night. And so what's really interesting about this description for us in Revelation is that it, in verse 25, it says that its gates will never be shut by day. And that statement all by itself maybe isn't all that arresting. You know, lots of cities don't have gates shut by day. So, you know, gates are shut at night. But instead of Revelation saying that, instead of John describing this beautiful city the way every other city would be described, he does something unique. He starts by explaining that though the presence of God and the Lamb is what is going to give the city light. It is what is going to illuminate the city. Again, it's the presence of God. And we've looked at this, particularly in episode 114, but we're getting at this idea, the glory of God gives the city light and its lamp is the Lamb. And so the lamb and the one seated on the throne are providing light for this city. And so John is able to say its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Now, if you take his imagery, what he's done with this description, your brain has to take a couple of steps to get there, but you can follow his logic. Its gates will never be shut by day. The only option other than the day is the night 
those are the only two options we're given. Um, even Genesis 1 tells us that there was morning and there was evening, you know, the first day, evening and morning, evening and morning. God separated the light from the darkness, right? The, the light he called day and the darkness he called night. There's only two options. Its gates will never be shut by day. Ah, okay, so its gates will be shut by night, but there is no night. Implication, its gates are always open. That's the implication, This is exactly what John is describing. And what's significant about this is that the emphasis in Revelation 21 and 22, while there are descriptors of those who are in and those who are out, the emphasis is on the fact that within the city, the Lord is seeking to protect what is honorable and what is worthy of being protected. But noticing that these gates or these walls and having someone bring a meme into a political discussion regarding what heaven has is to actually misunderstand the nature of what Revelation 21 is doing. Revelation 21 talks about the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the city. And if gates aren't used to keep people out because these gates are always open by day and night doesn't exist there, then you have gates in a city that are never shut. And you might wonder, well, well, then what's the purpose? Or as I've heard, I used to hear growing up, you know, if a 7-Eleven is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, do they even have locks on their doors? And I'm not sure who first posed that question to me as a kid, but the truth is I have no idea. I'm sure they do for some emergency purposes or something unforeseen, but it's a funny question, right? Because you think, well, if they're always open, then why would you ever lock the door? Well, something similar is happening here. The gates are always open. And I think what's typical for you and for me, and Israel ran into this problem themselves, and that was to believe that it was their gates that were their protection or their gates that were their defense, when it is the Lord himself who wants to be their protection, who wants to be their defense. In fact, in Psalm 50, the Lord is spoken, or maybe it's Psalm 48, the Lord is spoken about as a city, but the fact, the glory of that city is that his presence will be there. And so in Zechariah chapter 2, I think this gives us a, a, a better picture here of what John is attempting to do in Revelation 21. And the Lord is promising a day where Jerusalem, he says, shall shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now, John picks up the second half of this verse. I will be the glory in her midst. John tells us that the glory of God gives the city light. But in the first half of Zechariah 2, verse 5, he says, the Lord says that I will be to her a wall of fire all around. And we've talked about this in the past, and I won't go all the way through this again. Just enough to say this, that the Lord's presence in a place is both a protective element for those whose care and and protection of, of him are on the inside of this city, and they're a natural deterrent for those who are on the outside. And so a lot of what's happening in the New Testament is when Jesus comes to heal people and to set them free, he's coming to root out of them the very things that would naturally and normally keep them from wanting to enter the presence of God. You know, God is light, John tells us in 1 John, and in him, There is no darkness at all. 
Well, if there is darkness within you and me, then our natural tendency is not to approach light in all its glory and beauty because we know that that light will instantly expose the darkness that is within us. In fact, more people feel comfortable staying in the darkness because at least in the darkness, darkness itself covers over the types of things within their lives that they don't want anybody else to see. And this is exactly the way John describes in the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, why people do not come to the light. And Jesus himself calls it the judgment. The judgment is not that he has come into the world to condemn the world, but rather that men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so if we take that idea that people prefer the darkness to the light and they tend to reject Jesus's offer of shining his light into their dark hearts, then we're left with this idea of what keeps people outside the city. It's not so much a threat or a punishment as it is their own unwillingness to have the city life and the city light shining in and through and all around them. Now, the reason why I bring this up is in response primarily to this meme that I've come across, but it's also from a major misunderstanding about what gates are for. Many of you may remember the passage from Matthew 16. It's a pretty famous one. Let me just read it for you here because gates are spoken about, but they're not spoken about as heavenly gates or the gates of the new Jerusalem, the holy city, but rather on the words on the lips of Jesus, they're spoken about as relating to hell. And so here's what I want to read for you. It's Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, again, I said this is a familiar passage and I'm sure for many of you it is, but there are two things I want to draw your attention to. The first is that Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, against the church. And then he says that he will give his disciples the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, keys typically are for the opening of doors or the opening of gates or the locking of doors or the locking of gates. And if Jesus gives you the keys, then you have access to do what you want with the doors or with the gates. You can lock them, you can unlock them. And he talks about that in terms of forgiveness. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But he uses these, these words of binding and loosing. 
Well, two chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, is Jesus' famous parable about the unforgiving servant, the one whose master forgives him of a decent sized debt or a massive debt rather. And then when a servant of his owes him even a decent debt, but something much less in comparison to the debt he was previously forgiven of, he's unwilling to forgive his servant. And these words binding and loosing are used interchangeably in that parable. The point we're supposed to take away from this is to get something to the effect of the binding and loosing as it relates to what hell and what hell's purpose is actually all about. But before we even jump into that, I want to point out that if you look at the gates of hell in, in reference to what Jesus says in Matthew 16 with the gates of the city in the New Jerusalem, we need to realize and remember that gates are for defense. They're not for attacking So Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I, again, do not remember where I heard this or how I picked this up. Maybe I was all alone. But I remember thinking, okay, hell will not be able to attack the church. And the church will always be strong. And so when I see things attacking the church, I need to remind myself that Jesus is not going to allow us to be attacked. And yet... The posture of many Christians today is to look at the world as if the world is attacking them. And we play this game of kind of hold ourselves back and and we're sort of timid or afraid or we're upset that the culture is pushing against the church when we try to remember a day in the past when that wasn't the case. And it just discourages um, Christians in general. But that image and that, that, that mindset is entirely backwards based upon what Jesus actually says. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. What does that mean? That means that gates are for defense. They're not for offense. Nobody's attacking anything. Hell is not attacking. Gates are protecting what is inside And so, again, closed gates are what you normally find in a city at night, but in the Jerusalem, in the New Jerusalem, of course, there is no night. But again, if gates protect what is inside, then what Jesus says is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. He is not talking about hell attacking anything. Gates don't attack you. Gates protect what is inside them. inside the city that is surrounded by walls of which the gate is the way you come in and out. So what Jesus is actually saying in Matthew 16 is that hell will be powerless to protect the prisoners that it has kept locked inside its gates. In other words, Jesus and his followers, his church, will storm hell's gates and release prisoners from Satan's clutches. Now, I don't know how this sits with you. Um, If you back up to Matthew chapter 12, there's another really strange scene, and it is one where Jesus is speaking about going into a strong man's house and binding the strong man first and then plundering all of his possessions. And it sounds like a really strange image until you start to process what it is Jesus is actually doing. You see, the strong man, Satan, will be tied up by Jesus 
and his possessions, which is a funny way to put it, but his possessions will be plundered. His possessions are people. People who are caught in the grip of sin's destructive ways and who need to be set free. This is what Jesus assumes. He assumes that the kingdom of darkness has captured the hearts of everyone. He who has not only a superior strength, but strength of a different kind, is capable of binding the strong man and loosing all of his possessions. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that when the light of his presence shines into the darkness of this world, those whose dar- who, who, who um, possess darkness within their own hearts are open and willing to allow Jesus to shine light there. He will heal them from their darkness, brokenness, sin, and fallenness, and will set them free. He has come to give life. He has not come to steal, to kill, and to destroy, which is what John tells us Satan is all about in John chapter 10. The point of all of this is that gates are for defense. Gates are to protect what's inside not to fight against what's outside. And so in Revelation 21, when John tells us that its gates will never be shut by day, we have the glory of the Lord in the midst of the city protecting those who are in the city. But John also tells us that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into this city. And so there is a posture here. There is an openness, a receptivity, a a desire for those in the, the world, the nations to come in to the glorious heavenly city. It is not a description of a place that is exclusionary. And, and don't jump to any conclusions here. I'm not making definitive statements. I'm simply explaining the posture of the heavenly city. Why is it that John describes it as a place where its gates are always open? And I think I can give you a little bit of help. And let me sort of tie into it if I could. The fact that the kings of the earth, let's look at them as actual kings of nations, but also tie that into what is the posture that God has toward people in general. And that that could be you or that could be me or that could be our family members or so forth. So when we look at the gates in this new city, the focus of all of these descriptions is goodness, protection, righteousness, and flourishing inside the city. Now, the only way to ensure that and the only way to be able to describe that is to remove all the wickedness, corruption, and unrighteousness from the city. So the focus is on establishing God's righteous rule and reign with his people safely within the walls of his city, not merely to describe those who will be excluded from it. And I'm just, it's unfortunate that when Revelation 21 is cited, like it was in that political meme, it's done so in defense of a, of a particular agenda here on the earth. Um, I'm not sure that that there's a, a correct biblical view of what immigration and, and, and open borders or closed borders. I, I'm not here to defend that as much as I'm here to offer what John is actually attempting to describe 
and not let you or or me get caught up into wanting to apply it in a particular way to a particular um, um, partisan political discussion. So these constant descriptors, right? These double descriptors throughout the chapter of who is in, who is out, who's welcome, who's not, they function to establish the removal of all corruption so that mankind can once again return to a shalom-filled garden-like state with God and the creation. Jesus has come, as we've repeatedly seen, to deal with the effects of the fall. But I want you to listen to me. Sadly, there will be some on that final day who do not wish to be healed from that which they are caught up in or from those things they have unjustly pursued in this world that have benefited them. They don't want to let go of those things. Those things are valuable to them. But they won't have the final word. And they will not hijack God's glorious city with their wicked ways. If they will not receive Jesus' healing and allow him to root out their brokenness and sinfulness from them, they will find themselves outside the glorious gathering of God and his people. This is important. This is the continual work of sanctification in the Christian life. Growing and developing and cultivating a life that is more and more comfortable with the realities of the kingdom of God. This is why the Holy Spirit is continually at work in our lives and we do not just meet Jesus and spend eternity with him the moment we trust in him. He's preparing us. He's cultivating in us the kind of character we're going to need to fully appreciate our role as kings and priests in the new Jerusalem. I am not yet ready for whatever he has in mind. There are lots of areas in my life that still fit better within the kingdom of darkness than they do within the kingdom of God. I am as open as I can possibly be at this point to him showing me these things. But as you know, with any type of growth, any type of nutrition or weight loss program or um, exercising or lifting regimen that you put yourself through, you can only burn so much fat so quickly. You can only build so much muscle so quickly. You have to put yourself in patterns and behaviors and disciplines that are going to slowly over time um, transform your body. It's the same in the spiritual life. But I want you to see what God's posture is in all of this, as well as the posture of his city. His posture is openness. It is welcoming. It is inviting. If we look at this scene We talk about these kings of the earth bringing their glory into the city. Well, all throughout the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth seemed to indicate ways of ruling that were oftentimes at odds with the lamb. Hence, the church's temptation to rule in ways contrary to our calling. But here, the kings of the earth are spoken about in a different way. 
that this seems to be all positive here. This doesn't seem to be negative. This doesn't seem to be exclusionary. These kings, as they're, de- they're described in Revelation 21 here, don't appear to be in any opposition to the ways of the Lamb. And I think this is important. Um, I just want to read for you several paragraphs of something I wrote um, while preparing this message or preparing this episode, or actually a couple weeks ago now. And I just want to read it because I think it's helpful for me, this is my understanding of how this works. Um, in verse 23, God's glory is said to shine light throughout the city. Glory simply means likeness. So God's likeness represented by the lamb himself is what will illuminate the new Jerusalem. That's the light that will be present within the city. But in the very next verse, the kings of the earth are said to bring their glory into the new city as well as a gift to the lamb. The glory of the kings of the earth is their likeness. What makes each of them unique and special. And so what we have going on here is the honoring of nations with all their diversity and complexity. And the subtle, but this is important, but needed distinction between elevating one's differences above other nations, the forever temptation of empire, and the recognition that a nation's unique distinctions can also be offered as an expression of their identity before God and the Lamb. We can bring to God and the Lamb what is unique to us as kings, as rulers, but not that which stands in opposition to who God and the Lamb are and who they have called us to be. The same needs to be said for nations. God loves nations with all their diversity and uniqueness. The trouble comes when those same nations elevate themselves above other nations and take on the characteristics of an empire. God stands opposed to empires but he loves nations. For years, I didn't understand this. I lacked true self-awareness, but because I understood Jesus's words of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me as a command not to pay much attention to oneself. After all, he's asking me to deny it. I didn't realize I was missing anything, but I was. I was missing me. Who was I? How had God made me unique? What did I possess and for what purpose was I created that no one else had been? What was God planning when he created me just the way I was? I had no idea. And I never even asked that kind of question because to me, it seemed self-centered. And I knew being self-centered was wrong. But because I never asked that question and because I never really knew myself, I didn't have any idea what he was asking me to deny. You cannot deny what you don't know you have. And so I lived my life in a constant state of frustration. I mean real frustration. I wanted to express myself, to be myself, act in ways consistent with who I was, but I didn't really know who I was. And for the life of me, I could not figure out which parts of me needed to be denied and which parts of me were me. And if you don't know the difference, 
you end up thinking God is asking you to deny the parts of yourself that he explicitly created for you to glorify him with. And that's troublesome to say the least. This picture in Revelation 21 of the kings of the earth helps us. We were all created to be kings. And so we can take our cues from actual kings. Kings of nations represent the glory, the uniqueness or likeness of a particular nation. They represent what makes each nation special, what makes them distinct. God loves distinction. He loves difference. And he loves it when despite their differences, people made in his image still choose to come together to become something greater than they could have been apart. This is what the new Jerusalem is all about. It's a bringing together of the glory of the nations, a coming together of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's a uniting of a multiplicity of peoples into one new people, the bride of the lamb. But without the distinctions, we become flat, kind of like a non-person. And this is precisely what human beings create when they set out to form a nation. They want sameness. And they tend to see distinction and difference as threats. But this is not what God wants for his world. Rather, what he wants are for nations to express their unique identity, for people to discover how that they, they have been made special and to offer that uniqueness, to offer those special gifts for the benefit of the community and for the glory of God. When that happens, true shalom happens. True human flourishing happens. True goodness happens. But when individuals or nations elevate their uniqueness above that of other people, shalom is destroyed. It is ruined and human flourishing crumbles. The image that John is creating for us is that the kings of the earth will bring what is unique to them into this city as an expression of their identity as image bearers of God and as a way of honoring the lamb. And the lamb welcomes their diversity. He honors and loves their uniqueness. But as John has played plenty with throughout Revelation, when empires who see themselves in their place as nations, as the divine means through which God chooses to rule the world, then they become tyrants. They become idolatrous. They become means by which they compete with the sovereignty and care and, and kindness and rule of God himself, which is why John constantly has to elevate the lamb as the one who shares the light that, the, that, that, that God shines on the city and that the lamb is the way by which God rules the world. It's in contrast to the way Caesar rules the world. Caesar rules the world with a power over kingdom of the sword mentality. God through the lamb rules the world in a kingdom under in a power under kingdom of the cross mentality. It is a very, very different mentality. 
And the mentality carries right on into the new Jerusalem, such that the Lord loves diversity. He loves difference. We tend not to. We tend to cultivate groups of people who share the same interests, who look the same, who talk the same, who act the same, who think the same. And to a large extent, I get it. I I do the same thing and we don't have to feel guilty about that. It is simply easier. But the Lord's grace and his welcoming spirit for diversity far exceeds anything human beings understand or even desire most of the time. And so he has gates where his presence is a wall of fire all around his people and his glory being in their midst both protects them and keeps out of the city those who don't want to have anything to do with that. But I want you to recognize that the posture is not coming from God toward the people saying you're not allowed in here. The posture is more the people outside the city don't want to experience what it is that they would have to give up in order to come in to the city. We don't have to give up our unique identity. What we have to give up is the idea that who we are and the customs and the things that we participate in are somehow better or more righteous or more deserving of entrance into the kingdom than someone else's customs or someone else's appearance or someone else's character. What Jesus is interested in dealing with in the world is to, is to level it. I, I, Luke talks about this in Luke chapter 3 where every mountain will be brought low and every valley will be raised up. We have lots of people that we've placed on mountains and lots of people that we've chosen deserve to be in the valleys. And Jesus has said, that's all fake. In my kingdom, we level it out. You all come to the Father through me, not through what you perceive puts you on a mountaintop and someone else down in the valley. But this is a mindset that not everyone in the world wants to be a part of. And I actually believe John intends us to know that there are those who have experienced the mountains in this earthly life and the quote unquote good news of the kingdom to them doesn't sound like good news anymore. It sounds like they only stand to lose. Now, of course, that isn't true, but they're so comfortable in their place at the top that they can't even envision a world where they wouldn't always be there. Well, they're not going to like the look of the kingdom. And yet what John is inviting us to consider here is that the kings of the earth, the the glory and the beauty and the transcendence and the majesty of the holy city is going to be because of the presence of all the diversity, uniqueness, and speciality that brings all the nations together into one common people. Not a people that are divorced or or devoid of their uniqueness, but rather are invited to bring their uniqueness to the table. And I really think this helps us understand so much of Paul's imagery in the New Testament regarding the diversity of gifts, the diversity of strengths or weaknesses or honoring the parts of of the body that are less presentable and caring for those that are different than us and recognizing the gifts that we have didn't come from us. They came from God to build up the body. Unity in diversity, that's always been the picture and it will always be the picture. And so its gates will never be shut. It's a posture of heaven. It's an openness and a receptivity. 
Jesus inviting everyone in who wishes to be a part of his kingdom. It's free, but you will have to check everything that doesn't fit at the door. And for many of us, we know what that feels like. And initially it feels like loss. And then we let go of those things long enough to see what Jesus has offered us instead. And we come to find out all along, it was never loss. Rather, it was our holding on to those things in the past that was our actual bondage. But thankfully, he entered into the strong man's house, tied up the strong man, and then plundered his possessions. And that was you, and that was me, and we're longing for the day when he will do that and offer that to and for everyone. So that's all I have for this week for the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you to those of you who've left me a rating or a review or both. And if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to. It's a really great way for others to find the podcast. Thank you to those several of you who are supporting Unbinding the Bible on a monthly basis. If you would like to contribute um, a little bit of money, that certainly helps me with the purchasing of resources and the carving out of time and um, setting up the, 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 well, basically the time that it takes me to do this each and every week and then the resources I need to purchase in order to be um, read up enough on what I plan to talk about to be of service to you. Um, you can find a link at the bottom of each of these episodes that will take you to a webpage where you can support me for 99 cents a month or four ninety nine a month or nine ninety nine a month or a couple of you have generously found me on Venmo and have Venmoed me just a one-time gift. And that's really, you just, you just have no idea. It isn't, it isn't just that it's money. It's that you have taken the time to think about that and have encouraged me in that way. And so thank you for those of you who have done that as well. Hope you all have a great week. We will be back next Thursday, Lord willing, for the next episode in Revelation. Until then, have a great week.